Would you turn with me, please, to the last chapter, the very last chapter of the uh, Gospel of John. John is the last of the Gospels. If you're just uh, learning about the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And chapter 21, 21 of John is John's epilogue to this, uh, this fourth Gospel. We've been uh, working our way through this book for a little over a year. And I feel that we're saying farewell to an old friend. Although it's not farewell, I hope you'll come back to it again and again and refresh your, uh, your memory concerning what this apostle has to say about, about our Lord. Chapter 21, as I say, is, is the epilogue. The conclusion to the book actually comes in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. But John had something more that he wanted to say about Peter. John is the apostle whom Jesus loved. That's the way he designates himself in the book. If John is the apostle whom Jesus loved, then Peter is the apostle who loved Jesus. And that's the point of this epilogue. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I struggle from time to time with my love for the Lord. It's, hard, it's easy for me to have a, a kind of hard-headed love for Christ. I've been a Christian a long time. And I've been to a couple of seminaries, and I've studied the Bible for a long time, and you would expect me to know something about Jesus. But I find that, uh, that sometimes my knowledge of the Lord is nothing more than intellectual, and when it comes to feeling a real love for the Lord, I, I feel a real deficit there. Well, this is the passage that speaks to that issue. It tells us how to have that kind of love for the Lord. Let's begin reading with verse 1. After these things, Jesus made himself visible again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, that is, the Sea of Galilee. And he manifested himself in this way. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas, doubtful Thomas, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the one of whom Jesus said, this is an Israelite in whom there is no guile, and the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and two other of his disciples. We don't know if these were apostles or not. But uh, there were at least uh, these seven gathered at the uh, Sea of Galilee in obedience to our Lord's request. He had told them to go on to the north country, and he would meet them up there at a particular mountain. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. That's a man after my own heart. <clears throat> they said to him, We will also come with you. There are always, there's always some fellow who is enticing your husbands to go fishing. And uh, these uh, six went along with him. Now, you have to understand uh, Peter's frame of mind at, at this point. Uh, Peter was the most promising of all the apostles. We Protestants uh, sometimes shrink from the idea that Peter was the lead apostle, but he was. There's no question about it. He was the spokesman for the apostles. He was in the inner circle. He was one of the three, along with James and John, who, who were closest to the Lord. He was a spokesman for the apostles. There's no question about his significance. He was the first and leading apostle. He, was the one, he had more insight than any of the other apostles. He was the first to, to affirm that Jesus was the Messiah of the apostles. And uh, he had a leading position. But as you know, Peter denied the Lord. He, he told the Lord, I will never deny you, even though everyone else does. I won't. And then he turned around and denied the Lord three times. And he was crushed by that failure. Uh, 
the, the Gospels tell us that he, he went out and wept bitterly because of his collapse. And it took him a long time to recover. When he went to the tomb, saw the grave clothes, realized that Jesus' body had passed through the grave clothes, he believed in the resurrection. And shortly after that, the Lord himself had a conversation with Peter. We don't know what, what was said, but uh, both the Apostle Paul and the Gospel writers refer to a, a special appearance of Jesus with, with Peter, and they talked things over, and, and apparently his relationship was restored at that point. He knew that, that the Lord forgave him. But I think Peter, right to the very end, uh, just, just prior to the event in this passage, described in this passage, was feeling disqualified for ministry. He didn't think he had anything to say. He'd failed so miserably. He was utterly collapsed in his faith, given way to cowardice and fear, and he, he felt that he'd disqualified himself. He had no place in God's program. He believed that his relationship to Christ was restored, but he didn't think he could ever be useful again. And I think that's why he said to, uh, to his friends, Let, let's go fishing. He, Peter wasn't a recreational fisherman. He was a commercial fisherman. That's the way he made his, his living. It's his livelihood. And uh, I think he was saying, I, I've got nothing to say. I'm just going to go back to, back to fishing. So he and his six friends pushed their big old trawler out uh, on, the, on the lake. And uh, they began to fish all that night. And John tells us he was in the boat with Peter. They caught nothing. Now, that's really odd for commercial fishermen. These men made their livelihood from fishing, and they didn't make too many mistakes. There might be a, a few nights when the haul was less than other nights, but normally they caught fish. But on this particular night, they caught nothing. When the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. He was about 100 yards away, and they were looking through the mist. There's often a heavy mist in the morning over the Sea of Galilee, and and they, they couldn't tell who it was. They just saw a figure on the, on the shore. And he said to them, Children, you don't have any fish, do you? The way the question is put anticipates a negative answer. No. He knew that they had caught nothing. And uh, if you look in the margin of the NASB, you'll see what, what it is that he actually said. He didn't use the word fish. He just used a word for something that you put between two pieces of bread. We'd say today, today you don't even have a sandwich, do you? The point is, they didn't even have enough to eat on their own, much less to uh, provide for their families and anyone else that might want to buy a fish from them. They had been skunked completely. The Lord said, you, you, you don't have anything to eat, do you? And uh, they said uh, rather tersely, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. Now, I don't know about you, but the fishermen I know are notoriously defensive. They don't like to be told how to fish. Uh, I find it's better to just fish your part of the stream and leave them alone. And, and if they're not catching anything, you wait till they ask. You, you don't offer any advice. I uh, get a little newspaper from the Orvis Company called the Orvis News, and there's always an editorial in there by the, the editor, and he was describing recently a trip that he took to England and he ran across this elderly Britisher fishing some stream in, in England. He was fishing it very ineptly. And so he offered some advice to this old fellow. The fellow turned around and said to him, No, it's not my fishing, it's you Yanks. 
And he said, what, what, what do you mean it's us Yanks? And he says, well, it's you Yanks. He says, you, you've been blowing up those atom bombs and mucking up the atmosphere. And, and ever since, the fish haven't been biting here in England. The problem is you Yanks. Had to chuckle because that's, that sounds like a fisherman to me. Problem is always something else. And they, they don't listen very well, but there's something about this uh, request that caused them to, to take heed to it. And they cast, therefore, on the right side, the starboard side of their boat. And they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. That disciple, therefore, whom Jesus loved, that is John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. Now, John didn't see through the fog and see Peter. The mist didn't rise, or see the Lord. The mist didn't rise and he identified the Lord. He just realized only the Lord could do that because it was such a prodigious catch of an enormous number of fish. He just turned to Peter and said, that has got to be the Lord over there. And Peter just launched himself into the sea. He was fishing stripped to the waist and he put on what today would be a, a shirt and just did a racing dive in the Lord's direction and splashed his way the 100, 100 yards or so to shore while the rest of the fellows put the catch in the little boat, the little little uh, rowboat that they towed behind them and began to row the catch into, into shore. Uh, we have a, a book at home that contains famous uh, uh, drawings of the events in in the New Testament, artist representations of these various incidents, and this particular, the particular one that goes with this story, was done by a, a, a 16th-century Italian artist, and he he pictures the Lord, uh, the the boat with six of the apostles looking down at the catch. Two of them are straining at the catch uh, at the at the net, trying to pull it into the boat, and they're bending their backs, and they're all looking at the catch and you can see the looks of astonishment on her face and Peter is looking at the Lord I think he's captured something there Peter's heart was filled with affection for his Lord he just saw this as another indication of the Lord's ability to provide for their needs and he just dove right into the water splat and started to splash his way to to shore and when he got there he, he saw it a charcoal fire already laid. That's such a nice touch. Remember, it was around a charcoal fire that Peter denied the Lord three times, and the Lord had that fire burning there. And it must have reminded Peter of the prior incident when he had so terribly failed the Lord. And then he saw fish placed on it, and it dawned on him that the Lord didn't take from his catch and, and cook it for breakfast. He had provided his own fish. He didn't need their fish. He was well able to provide for their needs. And then uh, the Lord said to him, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. And Simon Peter went over and drew the net to land. He must, must have been the biggest and the stoutest of all the apostles. He just hauled his net into, into land. And they started counting the fish to divide them up as their practice was. And they, they came to the number of 153, which would be an enormous catch of large fish, is the way John puts it. Big fish. 153 of them. I think what went through Peter's mind at this point was something that had happened a couple of years before. Peter and Andrew, who was his brother, and James and John, who were their partners in, in the fishing business, were were on this in the same spot. They were they were mending their nets one morning. They'd been fishing all night. They hadn't caught anything, 
And uh, they were sitting on their, on their boats, tying their nets back together, mending the tares and throwing the rocks and the weeds and, and the trash out of their net. And the Lord came by with a number of people that he was teaching. People were always following him about. And, and the Lord began to teach them. In a little cove there, and the crowd pressed in on the Lord, and he kept backing into the water, and finally his feet were getting wet. So he, he asked Peter if he could stand in his boat. And Peter pushed the boat off a, a ways into the cove, and, and our Lord taught the crowd. Peter sat in the boat and listened. He'd heard the Lord before. He knew the Lord quite well. He'd met him a year, year before. When they were in Jerusalem, he'd heard him teach a number of times. And uh, after a bit, when the Lord finished his teaching, he turned around to Peter and said, Let's go fishing. And, and I'm sure what went through Peter's mind was, uh, Lord, you're the preacher, I'm the fisherman, you stick to preaching, and I'll stick to fishing. I won't preach if you don't fish, you know, or if you don't tell me how to fish. But nevertheless, he said, I'll do it. So he, they rowed out into the middle of the, of the little sea, and uh, they, they dropped down the net. And the catch was so uh, vast, the net began to break, and they yelled for their partners, and they came over, and they, they just this huge catch of fish, and the, the, sh- the little boats began to, began to sink, and Peter fell on his knees and said, Lord, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And the Lord said, Peter, you've been catching fish, you follow me, and from now on I'll make a fisher of men out of you. And Peter left his boat, turned his back on his vocation, left his boats and his nets and his partnership, and he walked off, left the whole thing, and he became a fisher of men. I think what happened to Peter at this point is that he remembered all of that and our Lord's call to him, and he realized that his failure had not disqualified him, that the Lord wanted to use him again to catch catch men. No failure is too great. As I've said so many times, you can't outfail the grace of God. No matter what you do, any sin repented of is forgotten and we're put back to the task. And that's what Peter saw. And the Lord was able to meet his needs. He could feed him and he could use him to feed others. I think all of that came home to Peter. And that is such a great lesson for us to learn. We look back in our past or the things you did yesterday and you think, my goodness, how can I get up this morning and teach that Sunday school class when I did what I did yesterday? You see, we need to know we're forgiven. Sin repented of never disqualifies us. We get right back to the task. Or maybe it's some failure years ago. You did some terrible thing to someone else that you can't forget. And they can't forget. But our Lord wants to make fishers of men out of us. And sin repented of doesn't disqualify us. That's what Peter saw. So he could go back to fishing for men. After breakfast, according to verse 15, Jesus said to to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. Take care of my, my little sheep. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep, lead to pasture, feed my mature sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. 
Now, much has been made of the fact that our Lord used two different words for love, and and uh, Peter uses a different word for love than our Lord uses. The NASB uh, picks up the change in the in the side note. Some have said that the the word which our Lord used when he first asked the question of Peter, Peter, do you love me, is the word for divine love. That's God's love for us. And he's saying to Peter, Peter, do you love me like that? This kind of self-giving, sacrificial way. And Peter uses a different word when he comes back with an answer. He says, yes, Lord, I, and the word he uses is phileo. Our word Philadelphia comes from it, the city of brotherly love. And some would say that's a lesser love. That's a lower level of love. That's human love. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me with God's love? And Peter said, in effect, says, no, Lord, I, the best I can muster up is human love. And the Lord asked the same question the second time, Peter, do you love me with God's love? And Peter says, no, the best I can do is human love. And so then the Lord condescends to his level of understanding and capacity. And he says, all right, Peter, do you, do you love me with human love? And Peter says, oh, yes, Lord, you know I love you with human love. But I, I, I just don't think that's what our Lord had in mind at all. In the first place, the two words don't uh, distinguish between divine love and human love. The first word that's used, agapao, the first verb that our Lord used, means to love someone volitionally, uh, volitionally, to choose to love. No matter how you feel about the person, to choose to, to seek the best for that other person. The other word, phileo, has to do with the way you feel, has to do with emotion, with compassion or passion. And that's what's behind the, the two words and the, and the difference in the two words. The Lord would, wasn't coming down. Peter was coming up. The Lord says, Peter, do you love me volitionally? Have you chosen to love me? And Peter says, oh, Lord, I love you with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength. And the Lord said a second time, Peter, do you, do you love me volitionally? And Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. You know how affectionate I, I, I feel toward you. And the Lord said, Peter, do you love me that way? Do you really have a passion for me? And uh, John tells us that Peter was grieved at this point. Now, some of the translations uh, seem to indicate that Peter was annoyed that the Lord had asked three times. But that's not the significance of the word. The word means to be sorrowful. I think at this point, Peter broke into tears. This big, tough fisherman broke down and wept. Because it dawned on him that our Lord asked the question three times because Peter had denied the Lord three times. And it was the Lord's way of letting Peter know that everything was okay. He was restored. He was okay. He was all right. No problems. No barriers. And dear old Peter, tough old Peter, just, I think, burst into tears and said, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, I, uh, the, the text goes on to explain, we're not going to talk about this portion of the passage, but it goes on to explain to Peter, or the Lord explains to Peter, that just because he's affirmed his love for the Lord doesn't mean that his life is going to go well. He says, when you're, when you're older, they're going to stretch out your arms and take you someplace you don't want to go. And John says, commenting on this, it, Peter probably didn't know at the time, but with the advantage of afterthought, John says he was talking about Peter's death and the kind of death that he would die. And, and Peter points to his friend John and says, what about him? And the Lord says, it doesn't matter what happens to him. You follow me and this." As a matter of fact, John 
lived out his whole life into old age and probably died of old age, as best we know. He went into exile, and he was badly treated, but he, he wasn't martyred for his faith. Peter was. And I think what our Lord was saying to Peter, and, and uh, he says to us, is that just because we love the Lord doesn't mean that things are going to go well or that our life on earth is going to be easier. We're not going to have struggles in our marriage or with our health or with our businesses. Things may be tough, but it doesn't matter, see doesn't matter. doesn't mean the Lord doesn't love us. Our task is simply to follow Him, to love Him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength. That's the first commandment, remember? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your mind, that is volitionally, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your being, everything that's in you. Love me, He says, whether things go well or, or they don't go well. It's the only thing He wants. The only thing he asked for. When, when I was a little boy, I, uh, it's funny how things come back to you. I was sitting talking to Carolyn around the breakfast table, and all of a sudden this memory came back to me. I bet I haven't thought of this in 40 years. But uh, when I was a little boy, I, I'm sure it was before I started school, because as I picture myself, I wasn't wearing glasses when this happened. And I started wearing glasses in the first grade, so that's the way I date everything. And uh, my my mother, we, we had a little little game we used to play. My mother would uh, would reach over and grab my hand, and she'd squeeze it real hard. Now my mother was a little bit of a thing, kind of round and real little, but uh, she milked cows every morning until she got married, and she had one whale of a grip. My sister used to always hand her the jars to take the lids off of, and uh, she would. I was just a little bit of a guy, and she would reach over and grab my hand, and she would squeeze it four times. I don't know where she got got the idea, but she'd squeeze it four times. She wouldn't say anything. The four squeezes meant, do you love me? And I would squeeze back three times. Yes, I do. And then she would squeeze twice. How much? And I would go... Ah! I'd put everything I could into that into that squeeze. Both hands, you know, jump up and down on the hand. And I'm sure that made her feel feel real good. It always made me feel good, very secure. And you know, when I thought about this passage, I thought about that instant. That instant. That's exactly what the Lord is saying to Peter. Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, I do. The Lord said, how much? And Peter went, ah! I phileo you. I agape you. I love you with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength. I love you with everything I have. The Lord says, okay, Peter, go feed my sheep. It just strikes me that... Uh, we shouldn't lash people to get involved in ministry. I, you know, I've been in situations where people held over me this idea that you have to serve God. You know, this just sort of a guilt trip that's passed on to me. If you don't serve, you're disobeying, and you got to be teaching in the Sunday school, and you've got to be leading a growth group, and this and that and the other. And I know what happens to me in that kind of situation. And my enthusiasm is very short-lived. I can crank it out for a few months, and I just burn out and give up. You know where the where the the impetus comes from 
to endure in a ministry, it comes from our love for the Lord. That's the only thing that will sustain you. See, they're his sheep. He says, feed my sheep. Not my sheep. There he is. If I love him, I'll feed his sheep. And the question is not, do you love the ministry? Do you love to teach? Do you love your growth group? Do you love your church? Do you love to witness? But do you love me? If you love me, he says, you'll feed my sheep. It's just as natural as falling off a log. If you really love him, then you'll want to share your faith with the people around you that don't know the Savior. And if you really love him, you'll want to take time to talk to people that are hurting and provide the counsel that, that they need. And if you really love him, then when people start to wander off, then you, you'll go after them and, and try to bring them back. See? Nobody has to lash you. Nobody has to put some kind of false guilt upon you or motivate you externally. It just comes from within. If you really love him, then we'll do what he wants us to do for his sheep, his little sheep, as well as, as his as his big sheep. We'll tend them, we'll feed them, we'll provide for them, we'll care for them, we'll counsel them, we'll help them, we'll encourage them, we'll support them. See? Comes as a result of our love for him. Now, I, that, I have to say, that's where I struggle. You know, I, I, as I say, I, intellectually I can love the Lord because I know a lot about him, but it, it's the emotions, the feelings that I find wax and wane. You know, I, I don't always feel that affection. It occurred to me one day that the only way that I can love the Lord with all my heart, my soul, and my, my strength, as well as my mind, is if I just stop and think what he's done. That's, where the, that's when the affection for Christ begins to well up in me, when I realize that he died on a cross for me. Not, you know, I preach that all the time, but you know, it's stopping to remember that if I'd been the only human being in the world, he would have done that for me. And he freed me from the guilt of my past. And he's given me a future eternal fellowship with him. And no matter how tough things may be in this life, he has richly provided everything that I need in order to face life and its demands. He loves me. And he gave himself for me. He redeemed me from sin. And, and I just, when, when I start thinking about that, the feelings of affection and warmth for him begin to, begin to flow. Now, you don't have to have those all the time, but... But they're there when we focus and center upon the Lord. You know, I was, I was thinking the other day about some of the people that, that I, there are a lot of people I like, and a lot of people I can say I love, but the people I really have affection for are the people who have gone out of their way to do something for me, just out of their love for me. I have a friend down in California who started spending time with our, our number two son and just invested his life in that young man's life and and humanly speaking, Brian is today where he is because this man really loved him and cared for him. And every time I think about this guy, I just want to call him up and tell him I love him. And I've written him about a half a dozen notes in the last three or four years just to tell him how much I appreciate what he's done for him. Now, if human love works like that, how much more divine love? When you just stop and think of how much you're forgiven. Think of old Peter. Denying the Lord, then seeing him hanging there on a cross, paying the price for for that denial. These tough, rugged old fishermen are just, you know, nothing but 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 a pure love and affection and and desire to honor and and worship his Lord. That's where it comes from, just thinking back on on the cross and reflecting upon what happened at the cross. 
And let me tell you, when you do that, the desire to serve just flows. Nobody has to push you out. You just want to serve. That's all. I've mentioned before uh, the, the fellow that, that a year or so ago meant so much to me at a time when I just needed to hear the particular message that he has to deliver. His name is Henry Nowen, and he's an unlikely sort of person for those of us who are Protestants. He is a or evangelical Protestants. He is a, a, a teacher at Yale University, and you, you probably wonder, how in the world can anything good come out of Yale University? Uh, he's a Jesuit priest, but he has a deep, deep love for the Lord. And when you read his writings, that's what comes through, an adoration and devotion to, to Christ. And he's been a tremendous help to me in that, in that light. He tells of a conversation he had with Mother Teresa when he was struggling with his own desire to serve the Lord. And her advice to him was very simple, as her advice is always very simple. She said, Henry, spend one hour a day in adoration of Jesus and everything will be all right. That's the best advice I ever heard. Some of you may not be able to spend one hour. Your, your days are just too busy. But I, I would just say the same thing. Just spend some time every day in adoration of Jesus and you'll be all right. Everything else falls into place. This means we, we need to set up a time, a regular time, to look through the Word into the face of Jesus. And he'll give you a love for him because you'll see what he's done for you. And then everything will be all right. Everything else will fall into place. Let's pray. Now, we've come to the Lord's table this morning as we regularly do. And anything that we do regularly is inclined to be routine. We do it by rote. We don't have to think about it. We can think about something else and go through the motions. And I want to invite you this morning to not do that. But really to center on the Lord. Begin by thanking Him for what He's done for you, for the price He paid on the cross. And the forgiveness of sin that, that results. What we do in the Lord's table is remember the Lord's death. That's the point of it all. The bread represents his body that was offered up. The cup represents his blood that flowed for us, the giving up of his life. That's what he did for us. So as you uh, take these elements, would you remember his death? Just think on our Lord. Ponder what it means that he went to the cross for you.